The COVID-19 Conversations podcast is brought to you by the African Alliance with support from the South African Medical Research Council, the South African Department of Science and Innovation, and the Vaccine Advocacy Resource Group, which is 100% funded by activists. Hello, dear listeners. This is Maaza Siyum from the African Alliance with a Valentine's Day release of the COVID-19 Conversations podcast. In this episode, we have two guests who happen to be married to each other. Paida Gurupira is a healthcare worker based in Harare, and her husband Wilfred is the African Alliance's research lead. Paida and Wilfred spoke to me about their experiences with COVID-19 in Zimbabwe, both in terms of how the pandemic has affected the country and their lives on a personal level. The Gurupiras are COVID-19 survivors in every sense. They have lost family members, friends, and colleagues to the pandemic, but were also recently infected with the virus themselves. So in addition to talking about their grief and loss during the past year, they also walk us through how they manage their own infections while handling family life and risk in the midst of this pandemic. Finally, since we are releasing this episode on Valentine's Day, I asked our guests to open up about how the pandemic has impacted their personal relationship. The truth is that no matter where we are in the world and whether we're happily single, happily married, or everything in between, COVID-19 has affected all of our interactions in one way or another. I'm really grateful to Paida and Wilfred for being so open with us about their relationship. And I hope that everyone who listens to this conversation can take heart in knowing that sometimes even the most difficult periods can have a silver lining. Happy Valentine's Day, everyone, and I hope you enjoy the show. Haida and Wilfred Gurupira, welcome both to the COVID-19 Conversations podcast. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you, oh, for, thank you for having us. Great. So Wilfred, obviously I know you quite well. I don't have the pleasure of having met Paida yet until today. So I'm thrilled to have you both. And we're going to have many embarrassing questions for you, Wilfred, at the end, given that we are doing this as a buildup for, for Valentine's Day. Um, but really, we've invited you here today to talk about your own personal experiences as COVID-19 survivors. Um, obviously, we are thrilled that you survived and you're here to, to tell the tale. Globally, according to WHO, there have been over 100 million confirmed cases of COVID-19 since the start of the pandemic, and devastatingly, more than 2,200,000 deaths. Um, I know that you've lost several people to the disease um, in the last year, and I would love for you to tell us about that if you feel comfortable, and also your personal experience dealing with the virus in your community and in your home. Um, but before that, I was hoping we could talk about the situation in Zimbabwe, where you are joining us from. According to the Zimbabwean government, the country has so far confirmed about 34,000 cases and 1,300 deaths. By comparison, South Africa, which is next door, has confirmed close to 1.5 million cases 
and 45,000 deaths. Obviously, South Africa has about three and a half times the population, but the difference is still very stark. I don't think that Zimbabwe even ranks in the top 10 of official COVID infections on the continent. At the same time, however, the hospitals are full. There is a reported shortage of PPE, personal protective equipment, and at least four government ministers um, that I've heard of have, have succumbed to COVID-19. So I guess that's the first question, you know, in your opinions as, as healthcare workers, um, people who work in the field, um, do you think the official numbers are reliable? What's your sense of the pandemic in Zim? So from where I, I sit and with what has happened in the last year, I can say that our figures are an underestimate. I do not think they are a true reflection of the situation on the ground. Um, and again, I, I, I say this based on my own personal experience, not having done any sort of uh, work. And so it'll be my, my, my answer is based on anecdotal information. But with the number of people that have lost uh, family, friends, colleagues, the number of people I know who've been affected by uh, COVID-19, not just infected, but also affected. Yes, for us to have that few reported cases and even the number of deaths, I think 1,300, I, I think represents um, an, an underestimate of what's, what's up. Our figures are way higher. I think we've had a lot more infections. I think we've, a lot, we've had a lot more deaths I'm pretty certain that for us, we are yeah, grossly underreporting to quite a, a large magnitude. Okay, thank you, Wilfred. And Paida, in your case, I know that you have you wear many hats in addition to to having two kids and a household that that um, you are partially responsible for. You are a dentist, a master student, a hospital manager and a COVID-19 contact tracer. Um, there are reports that South Africa only has 30, um, that Zimbabwe, excuse me, only has 30 intensive care unit beds and that many of the health workers have been involved in some sort of, of strike action in the last year. So you have a very um, interesting perspective as somebody who has done COVID-19 contact tracing and has worked in a hospital. So would you agree with Wilfred, just in your opinion, that there might be some under counting going on with the numbers? Definitely. I mean, um, yeah, like you've said, I've been privileged to work both in, in the private and then in the public sector. I mean, in the public sector, I mean, from my own personal experience, you know, not only is it more about underreporting, it's also about the quality of data you get. So many mistakes um, happen. And this is mainly due to just, you know, human fatigue, if I can put it that way. Um, you would be surprised how many times someone would just, you know, just knock off and say, I'm not just going to report this. I'm tired. I'm done. They know that it has an effect on in them not doing that, but they'll still do it. So in my own, you know, working with people in close, in, in close quarters, is that quality of data where the, the, the healthcare worker can just sabotage the system themselves because, you know, it's about re remuneration, like you say, PPE, and, you know, sometimes, you know, human nature, you just want to find a spot where, where can I say, you want to stick it to the man. And mm. you, you then find such little places where you can just say, you know what, today I'm just not going to report it because you know it will have a knockdown effect. You want people to not have faith in the system. So 
like what Wilfred was saying, I agree totally. And it's also that human element, which we always forget to deal with, especially in, in um, the public sector, where people just don't just want to do what they have to do. And also in the whole system in itself. And those people who are dying without ever being tested, I mean, in the rural areas where no one ever went mm-hmm. there. So these mm-hmm. guys were never tested. Mm-hmm. Are, are they being counted for? And I mean, you... You, you now value that, um, I guess when you've experienced COVID, you then realize each and every number you see on those stats is a person, it's an actual person. And mm-hmm. you, you, you get to think, if I was to die, would I want to be accounted for? Mm-hmm. And so all those other people who are dying in their homes, they're not being accounted for. Not everyone can afford a PCR test. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. how many people are just at home get a cough, they're like, look, I can't go and get tested. They don't have transport to go maybe to the public uh, sector. In the public sector, do we trust our system that every single sample which is going to go, we're going to get a result? So um, I feel because of all these things and so many other things I might have left out, I, don't, I, I seriously don't think the number that we're seeing is, is, the, is the most accurate number. I think there are more people. And as you say, that point of people dying at home is a really critical one. You know, if, if hospitals are already full, if there are really not that many beds in the intensive care unit even available to begin with, if people could potentially struggle to even make it to the hospitals. And besides, as you highlighted to us very importantly, you know, the health services um, seem to be underfunded and, and overstressed. Um, so it does create a confluence of many different factors which, which could affect this. Okay, but now I would like to to talk about, we are going to get to your personal experience, but would you like to highlight for us, you know, you mentioned, you know, everybody who dies of of any disease and, you know, this this COVID-19 in particular, we've lost so many people over the last year. Would you like to tell us about one or two of the people who are close to you who have succumbed to COVID-19 over the last year? Paida, I'll start with you since you mentioned it. Oh, for me, yeah. I lost my, my father's older brother and that one, you know, there's a bit of guilt to it all that he, he died yet, you know, I work in civil service. I am a doctor. And at that time I was actually working for a COVID hospital, but his, his is a, it's a very sad story because he collapsed whilst he was um, jogging. Uh, he was a bit on overweight. So he had decided to lose weight. And so he, he collapsed during his walk. And luckily, uh, one of the people who came to help him managed to get his phone and call. And as they were taking the phone from his pocket, someone called and that's how we found him. But, you know, everyone just put it as, nah, it's, you know, overweight. Maybe he overdid it, sent him home. And by the time people then even woke up to think, oh, it's COVID. And by the time people said, okay, Pida, can you help us because you're in this COVID? It was a bit too late. And because he was overweight, um, I remember the day he had to get admitted, the elevator at the hospital was not working. And so, and all the people were afraid to carry him because they had to carry him in a few flights of stairs. And I was at home and you know, you're trying to push as much as you can. And you're saying, okay, can I come there? And then even if you go, they're already saying he's in the red zone, you won't have access. So it was then trying to find a doctor who was in the red zone saying, look, can you carry my dad? Cause remember in Zim, um, my father's brother is my father. 
Mm. And it was trying to get people to carry him. And I think that process took us about five hours. Oh, and remember, gosh. this is someone who's desaturating and he's just at the bottom because people are saying, no, look, he's cool. And this was when COVID had, you know, the numbers had started in them. And when we finally got him up, it was a bit too late. He only then survived for a couple of days. And that's when another horror and disaster started because now you have to take him down. So his daughter and another cousin are the ones who had to carry their father from the upstairs to to the bottom for the for the funeral parlor to come and pick him up. So for me, my first experience left me feeling hopeless and saying, look, this thing we are fighting is is bigger than what we think. And my question was, oh my God, if this happened to him, and look, he wasn't a nobody in them. And just saying, if this happened to him, what is going to happen to the rest of the people? So so that has been my experience where I think you've all, you 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 end up thinking, okay, so what part can I do? Because for him, I failed. Like you feel like you failed. Mm. That's such a heartbreaking story. I'm so sorry. And you know, when we think about health services being underfunded in many of our countries, we don't. You know, we often think about the care itself and how that could be limited and the equipment. You know, such as oxygen and PPE. But something as basic as just being able to take someone up and down the stairs when the elevator is not working and the horror of having to carry your own deceased family member down the stairs is just, it's unimaginable. So I'm sorry that, that your family had to go through that, Paida. Um, Wilfred, I know that when we have spoken over the last um, few months, you have mentioned um, a few close people, um, even at work, um, who have passed away due to COVID-19. Is there anyone in particular who you'd, you would like to mention? So my experience is, is such that uh, I've kind of looked at the whole range of relationships that a person can have. And in every single division or sector, I, I've lost someone due to, to, to COVID-19. Um, but what I can say is there was a period where we thought the worst was over. So between mid-2020 right towards, to, to the end, I think, yes, there was loss, but um, not as much. And unfortunately, the beginning of 2021, I think we... I've experienced more loss than 20, more loss between the start of 2021 and now than I have in the whole of 2020. Um, so I lost my, my immediate boss, uh, a well-known and well-respected researcher, Professor James Akim. Um, the same day that we lost him, I also lost my grandmother, my maternal grandmother. Uh, due to COVID. Both of them were, were, were due to COVID. And one of the things that um, I don't think is emphasized enough is the, is the hopelessness that yeah. COVID brings uh, to a person because there's not much you can do. Then hospital, all you can do is wait. And when, when you're told that they've died, you're not able to pay your last respects, so to speak. Um, the, you know, there's a, there's a whole machinery that takes over from how the body's handled right up to burial. There's, the dominating feature is that hopelessness. You, 
and powerlessness that you're not able to do to do much Mm, gosh yeah and you know i can only imagine you know as both of you being in the healthcare field and paida as you say in particular you know working in public and private hospitals um Wilfred, you being a pharmacist and, and working on a COVID-19 project as well, you know, I would imagine that sometimes people look to you and think you will be able to yeah, do something yeah. that they can't do. And here you are yourself dealing with the, you know, the hopelessness and the grief and the despair, but added to that, the guilt of feeling like as somebody in this healthcare profession, you should be able to, to do something. Um, it's really difficult. And then on top of that, now, you know, I would like to, to get to your personal experience with the virus. Here you, we are, as you mentioned, you know, um, you, the first few people you, you lost um, who were close to you were in mid, around mid, middle of 2020, of 2020, you said. And now here we are, you know, early 2021, probably I would imagine, Wilfred, from, you know, what you say, given the uptick in cases and the uptick in, in deaths in the last mm-hmm. five weeks, probably from people traveling, you know, back and forth from South Africa for the holidays. Here we have this more transmissible um, variant in South Africa. Mm-hmm. So there might be something to do with that. Just with the holiday season, people getting together. It's summertime, people not thinking that the virus is as easily transmitted when it's warm and they're outside. And there's an uptick in cases, more people are dying around you. And then you start getting sick. And I can only imagine how stressful that must have been. So Paida, why don't you start and tell us what that process was like? When did you start feeling unwell? When did you suspect that it might've been COVID-19? What was the, the sequence of events? Okay, so for us, um, it was actually our, um, our helper uh, who got sick and she could hardly breathe, she could hardly walk. So immediately I thought, this is COVID because I had been working in COVID for a long time. And so in my mind, I was like, let me isolate her. I had an oxygen concentrator at home. I put her on the oxygen and then I told her, look, I'm not saying you have COVID, but from what you are sounding, you need this oxygen. We put a mattress in there and then uh, we, let, we laid her to rest. So I called work. I called a nurse and told them my husband was coming. Give him a swab, an aspirin, because she was also complaining about her heart being painful. Give him the swab. I will remain with her monitoring her and then bring him back. I'll swab her and then take the swab to the lab when I go to work. So that's exactly what we did. And then Wilfred came and then we swapped her and asked the lab if they could run it through the gene expert machine, which gives you results after 55 minutes. There I was going on with my day. 55 minutes later, they call me and say she's positive. And so the next thing was, I need to also test myself. So I got tested again. And remember, again, the lab has been gracious. I was going to get my results after 55 minutes. And this time my assistant said, no doc, I'm just gonna go and sit at the lab for you. So that as soon as, because the process of printing adds on to the minute. So she was there sitting, next thing in about 50 minutes, they get a text, a WhatsApp text with my name and everything in this written positive. So the first thing I did was to call Wilfred and say, where are you? If I'm positive, you are positive. And I remember the first thing I said to him, I said, I'm so sorry. Because in my mind, I thought I, I seriously believed it was me. Because I was thinking, where else could he have got it? There's no way he would have got it from the helper. 
And you know what people say that you all the intelligence, all the being adopted, it, it falls away. Because the first thing I was saying, where are you? Because I, I remember before I told him that I tested positive, I asked him, where are you? Are you driving? Are you okay? Go away from wherever you are. I have to tell you something. And then I told him that, look, I've also tested positive. And, but I will not come home now. What I'm going to do is I'm going to wait for that nurse to wait for your results and also ask the lab to put a rush on your results so that I know your results. So I was in my office for, by myself, you know, here you are in, I can't say I was a zombie, but the guilt is, I think, what I was like, oh my God, I've given my family, you know, I was like, if anything happens to them, it's my fault. I mean, where else could they have got it from? And especially you, with having lost several people who were close to you during the year, you know, as Wilfred mentioned, all of yeah. that grief and despair and helplessness sort of builds up, you know, finally. It after builds all up, this time. yeah. Yes. And I kept on saying, I hope, I hope, I hope Wilfred is negative. Because um, like I was saying, I, I had been exposed to the whole COVID, the whole testing. And most couples um, were not, they actually were not all testing positive. Mm, mm. So it had so many instances where one would test positive and the other one would be negative. Yes, and that is really interesting. You know, unfortunately, I have not been able to find any data from Southern Africa, but data in the US from the CDC shows that usually 53%, so if you're in close contact um, with, so living in a home with somebody, it's a 53% chance of transmission, which is high, yeah. but it also means that almost half of people don't, don't get COVID. You would think that automatically, you know, everybody who lived in the same house would be infected. Yeah. I guess there are questions of, you know, were people feeling symptoms? Because if somebody does feel symptoms, then you know that you can start isolating yourself even at home if you're able to do that. There's some, you know, the CDC guidelines are obviously very detailed in terms of, you know, if you test positive or if you start feeling symptoms, mask yourself, you know, clean everything with disinfectants. But if you don't know, it's very difficult yeah. to do those things. And yeah. it sounds yeah. to me like you didn't have symptoms at this point. At this point I had, you know, you now think of it in retrospect. Yeah. I had been unwell, but because we were at the peak of COVID, I had had to work myself through the symptoms, if that makes sense. Mm -hmm. I had had moments where I would wake up in the morning and tell, well, I'm just so tired. I, I don't think I can go to work. But, you know, you tell yourself, look, I have to do this, all these people, you know, you, you, you get it, that guilt from before. This is an opportunity for me to actually help people. You'll be feeling horrible. I, you would, there's a time I, I remember, we were, I was like, I was talking to someone, but I felt like my body was there but my being was somewhere else. And this is a client, but I had to, you know, I had to mentally tell myself, keep looking at them, keep looking at them. But I felt horrible and I was surviving on glucose tablets and energy, the juice. And I would always tell Will after the day and then he'll be like, maybe it's because you're working long hours. So we had put it down to just working hard, fatigue. Mm. And I had, I had the fever. And we had put it down to maybe I'm pregnant because all the times I've been pregnant, I have had hot flashes before. So you see how you, you, you run away from the obvious, like just get tested. But we, we had an excuses for everything. That's so interesting. So and it's sort of, 
it highlights the need for us as people who work in this field. Um, and Wilfred, I would love for you to talk about that a little bit. Those of us who work in this field to be much more empathetic towards others who don't work in this field. You know, and this is something that Professor Linda Gale Becker from DTHF, the Desmond Tutu Health Foundation mentioned in her own podcast, um, which is the most recent one on our website, where she as an infectious disease doctor, her husband as an infectious disease doctor and their son are also COVID survivors. And you know, she says, you would assume that as specialists who work in this field, um, we would have been able, or you know, we'd have been more likely to avoid it. But I think the fact that here you are, you know, a dentist um, who works in the field, um, Wilfred as well, who works in the field and still you know, able to try and rationalize um, yeah, that it must yeah. be something, something else. So, yeah. so Wilfred, tell us how you were feeling then during this period. You know, your wife is feeling unwell for the last week. You're thinking, oh, she's been working too hard. Finally, you find out that she's tested positive and you're waiting for your own results and you're not in the same place right now. So how do you, or at that moment, you were not sitting in the same house or in the same room. How were you feeling and what were the next steps for you? Yeah, so I, I, since the loss of my uh, uncle in mid 2020, I adopted a pragmatic perspective towards COVID, which I still believe to be the case that uh, for everyone, but in particular healthcare professionals who work in the front line, it's not a question of if you will get an infection, it's a question of when. And so when she then called me to tell uh, me her results, it was like, oh, okay, that explains the last two weeks of just generally feeling unwell or, you know, but at the same time, I couldn't dismiss the fact that she'd been working pretty hard and keeping quite late hours. So in my mind, I thought to myself, okay, uh, we, we, we're going to have to deal with the situation as it is. So it was, it was a pretty pragmatic perspective, driven primarily by the fact that I felt absolutely fine. So by the time results came back, it was, okay, literally one of those, it is what it is. Uh, there was neither sadness uh, you know, like th that extreme position to say, oh, woe is me or whatever. No, I think it was, for me, it was, uh, it was a bit perplexing to say, okay, so you've got this test result, but it is at odds with how you are feeling. And so how do you reconcile the two? Mm. So then after that, Paida, did you stay home for a few days? How did you deal, one, with being the one who was feeling unwell, two, you must have both been worried about the kids now, you know, what happens yeah. if you're both positive. Were the kids positive also? We never got the kids tested. Um, we just started them on multivits and steaming. Mm -hmm. So we just, um, we just said, let's assume that they're positive and... I think the hardest was coming back home, hey? It's like, like he's, I felt like I was coming back. I was coming back from prison and I'm coming to my house and now I have to apologize to everyone for what I've done. 
for this mess I have created. And remember at this point, the helper is still isolated in the house and you now have to go through the talking to her and saying, so what's next? Do you want to stay here? Where do you want to go? Do you want to go to your, to your house? Getting her relatives to know, getting to arrange to pick them up, explaining to the kids, because our kids are seven and five. They don't understand why mom has come back from home and is not giving them the hugs she usually did and why I'm keeping on wearing my mask. I think my oldest is the one who immediately say, take off your mask. And I was like, I can't. And because we had to deal with the helper first and everything, we never got a chance to sit them down with, sit them down immediately, but already isolation starts. And so you are in your bedroom. Luckily we have the toilet nearby. You are then explaining, you're just keeping on saying, no, no, don't come into my, don't come into my bedroom. And they're thinking, why? So we had to then have a conversation with them. One meter apart, tell them, go and take your mask. Mommy and dad are wearing a mask and say, look, mommy and daddy have COVID. You could see that they didn't believe us. They're like, now nah, you don't have COVID. They're like, yeah, we have COVID. And mommy's not feeling well right now. I, I, she needs to go to bed. And the older say, nah, you guys don't have COVID. And she went and continued watching TV. I think it dawned on them when the isolation, day three, four, where you are still insisting they cannot come into your bedroom. If they want to come into your bedroom, there's sanitizer outside at the, at, the, at the door. They have to sanitize. They have to wear their masks. They can't get hugged. They have to be a meter apart. They can't stay in the bedroom for too long. Food is being dropped off at the door. It's eaten and then the plates are taken away. We literally are not crossing over. That is when I think for me, I broke down. That was the worst. Because if they're crying, they fall, you can't go and comfort them. You just have to say, what's happened? And you're like directing, you know, you're like directing your life from these four walls. And that's another, you know, the, the, the guilt and the layers keep going on and on because now COVID brings another new normal. And that new normal is further complicated by the two of you being, you know, positive. And we always used to laugh and say, wouldn't it have been better if one of us was negative? Mm. And I would say, you know what? I wish I was, I wish I was the negative one because I would laugh and say, I think as a woman, I would be able to then nurse you, do homeschooling, go to the shops. Because at the time we needed supplies from the groceries, but we couldn't because I had asked Will not to tell my parents. And I had told them my parents, my parents panic. And, I, and at this point, I was not well. And he kept on saying, I need to tell your parents in case something happens. And then I'd look at him and say, who says anything is going to happen? Don't tell them. I'm going to tell them after I go through this. And so that was another complication. We're saying, if something happens to you, how will I explain it to them? And I said, don't worry. When I feel like it's getting that bad, I will write a letter and I will exonerate you from all this. And say it was my decision. Because remember at this point, Will has no symptom. We're wow. sharing the same room. We are isolating in the same place. I am having these out-of-body experiences. I am coughing. I am sneezing. I have dizziness. I have fatigue. I barely can take a shower. He is fine. Yeah. And I was asking yeah. him, are you being strong for me? And then he would say, I absolutely feel nothing. Then I'll be like, are you taking your meds? And he'll be like, for what? 
you know, you get, and then I was thinking, oh God, I think this is, yeah, yeah, you really are punishing me for bringing this thing in. And so those are the little social things we forget about isolation. How are you going to get groceries done? The kids are asking, we need ice cream. The ice cream is finished. Because for them, life has to continue. You're having COVID is your own business. There's that whole social aspect. I should have leaned on my parents. But at the same time, I don't know. For me, I just could not tell them. I just could yeah, not tell my parents yeah. that, look, I have, I have tested positive and I'm sick. Because I was thinking, no, no, no. So I would talk to my parents. And I was working from home, hey, sick as I was. So our clients never knew I was sick. My parents, my relatives never knew I was sick because I would answer the phone and I would take the last bit of strength I had to, to let them know. Because I always felt, you know what, like we were saying at the beginning, you are the COVID person in the family. You are the person who's supposed to be the pillar for everyone else. So you, you, you can't break down because everyone is, this relative is sick, this 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 thing at work has to be done. So if you if you break down, then the whole system and everyone else breaks down. So you have to be strong. And we kept on saying, just, just take a break. And I was like, I can't. I left work at such a critical stage. This person is sick. They're calling me because they need this. They need their meds. They're asking me what to do. So I can't, yeah, like literally during my isolation, I could not be sick. Wow. I feel so, like yeah. there's a whole separate... Um, podcast or podcast series here on um, uh, the fact that often women do tend to carry the guilt in these situations, even when it's completely unnecessary. Um, you know, I would like to, I mean, this kind of takes us into the, you know, the next part that I, that I wanted to talk about. And, you know, I think we will try and end on, on a little bit more of a, of a, of a cheerful note. But the, the first thing I want to say is it seems like within 10 days, though, your symptoms were done. And, you know, how do you feel now? And will, did you ever feel unwell during this process? Or do, were you throughout symptom free? And Paida, in your case, how are you feeling now? Yeah, so from from my side, I think uh, in the whole 14-day isolation period, I had a bad flu, I think is the easiest way to describe my symptoms, around midway, the midway point, I think it was the, the weekend in, in between um, the diagnoses. And it was a bad flu, the Friday was quite bad, by Sunday, it was gone. And yes, I, I guess you never, you're never quite sure that the after effects, you know, feeling a bit tired and out of it, is it the COVID? Is it, is it that, you know, just dealing with the isolation? And don't forget, there's also uh, a guilt that um, comes from being symptom-free whilst your partner is going through all these other uh, symptoms. Uh, and and you, you, you're kind of wondering, okay, so what, what's, what's so different about me uh, and why me? And so Paida may have been guilty about, oh, I brought this into the house, but I was guilty to say, oh, okay, I have it, but I'm not sick. And one of the things that um, doesn't get emphasized or mentioned enough with a COVID infection is how extremely disruptive COVID uh, is. And 
you know, during the process of, you know, the, the testing, um, the results, the isolation and recovery, whether you recover or there's a death, COVID is extremely disruptive from a social perspective. And I want to put my head out there on, on, on a block and say, if you have COVID-19 uh, infection and there are kids in the house and you have to isolate in the absence of physically removing the children from the premises or barricading yourself in your room, there's absolutely no way you can ice, you know, separate yourself from children, especially yeah. young children. It's just, they just don't, they don't understand it. They don't respect it. They don't get it. it. Yeah. They will, they will come in, they will jump on you, they will do the normal things and then remember, oh, by the way, we're not supposed to be here and then go away. So they, they you know, uh, there were days where you've locked yourself up in the room. The minute you unlock the door and they hear that the door is open, like you're bringing in food, straight through before you can stop them and it made you know what made things worse was the fact that i most for most of the isolation was symptom free oh they weren't buying it they weren't buying this whole you're sick you've got to isolate business no they were not buying it one bit and yes with time i think towards the end of our isolation it it kind of dawned on them that, yeah, this is serious because these two have been home uh, all this time. Uh, they haven't gone out to go to work or anywhere. So, yes, this must be serious. Mm. And you eventually told your parents? Eventually. <laughs> and what did they eventually, say? Well, it was over um, the phone call. My mom just went quiet. And... The first thing they say is, why didn't you tell us? And then, you know, you know, you try to explain that, look, I knew I was going to get over it. Nothing was going to happen. And I didn't want, what I didn't want was my mom freaking out and then turning up at my gate. That is why I didn't want to tell them. Because I knew there was, there was no way they were going to just sit at home after I tell them that I'm not feeling well and sit at home. So I explained all that. And then they said, no, it's fine no. <laughs> we'll get okay. to it and everything but I think there's a strange relationship I think she feels like I didn't trust her enough to tell her so I guess that's the another thing um you know she's thinking did you think we're going to stick with my ties and I'm like no 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 it was not this was it was not about stigma it was just about I I actually did it thinking I'm protecting you of because course. I knew I knew there was no way I was gonna t- you know I was gonna tell you and then you were just going to sit at home and call me every day and I didn't want her to call me every day because you know I was in this drive of ah, you know I'm just gonna I, I I just have to be strong and continue with my life this thing has come yes I feel like crap yes but I just have to go on so that is a relationship I have to mend because I think uh, that that simple thing of not telling her has will cause stress to that relationship but I think it's a it's it's the fallout I, I'm willing to take and I'm willing to work on. For me, it's better that she's alive and I would just have to buy her flowers or something extra special on Mother's Day. Of course. My dad, dad, I have no idea what he's going through. So yeah, he's just, you, he just said, oh, okay. 
And you mentioned this, you know, you've already, you've already feel guilty about the fact that people are infected. I mean, you could imagine if your mom had come over, let me take the kids from you both so you can. Exactly. And at that point, I didn't know if my kids had it. And imagine Mm. if they had, if she had taken them as a grandma, there was no way she was not going to, you know, dote over them. And imagine if one week later, I then find out, oh, your mom and my mom is asthmatic. I was going to find out, oh, actually she's sick. And I was like, so I, I, we had, it was a debate. It caused a bit of friction between myself and Will. But I said, no, Will, I need you to respect my decision in this case, because knowing my parents, knowing their character, they will be here and we stay 15 minutes apart. They're going to be here. And they're going to either insist, my mom will insist on camping up here or she'll insist on taking the kids. I don't need that that drama if then two weeks down the line she tests positive mm, definitely yes. yeah mother can mm-hmm. i yes, add something of course i think what a lot of people do not realize is um the irrationality and the emotions that come and are associated with uh covid19 infection particularly for families such as ours who've suffered quite a great deal of loss yeah your, your, your protective instincts kick in. They kick in and they override rational thought. Yeah. And in spite of all the guidelines and all the things that we know, when it comes to our loved ones and protecting our loved ones, yes, we, we, will, we will do things which are, may, may not be rational. Uh, families who have suffered grief and it has not yet been Uh, fully explored, once you expose them to a situation where there's potential for more grief, how would they kind of react? If we had gone ahead and told family uh, our diagnosis at the time, would their reaction have been purely rational? Or we would have, people would have come to us to say, in spite of the risk, we don't care, we we wanna see you because should you die, which is what has happened in the past. We want to be able to say we did everything that we can, so there's no guilt. We want to be able to say the last moments of this person on earth, we were there for them, which we couldn't do in the past. So there are all these considerations that you're making, but at the same time, you, the people involved, you're thinking, if we don't tell them, what are the consequences of of not telling them? I think the... When you come up against such a situation, the, 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 the human part of you, the, the, the emotions that, what do you do for your loved one? And what extent would you go for a love, loved one? Well, what are you willing to do for a loved one? All those things instinctively come up and kick in, which is why I'm saying, you know, for the kids, uh, isolation was, was a foreign concept. And for us, the logical, rational part of you is saying there's no need for you to be guilty about anything. But yeah. the emotional side is thinking, no, this isn't right and it shouldn't be the case. So, mm-hmm. yeah, there, there's that aspect that it's, 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 a, it's, it's, it's there interwoven in everything else is that what am I willing to do? So when there would be days where I think I actually changed my sleep pattern for Pida because there would be nights 
where I'm just making sure that, you know, we want to make sure that Pada gets through the night because she's, she's been complaining, she's had a bad day. I want to make sure that nothing happens through the night. And the only way to do that is if you yourself are up. And you're not up because necessarily you have to be up. Part of it is you're up because you can't sleep. The person who you're sleeping next, you know, it's, it's, it's simple things, uh, mother, like, Sometimes you get it into your head, oh my God, she's not breathing. That's all it takes. And you've got this downward spiral of, oh, she's not breathing, she's this. And you, I had to physically wake Pida up sometimes just to be, to be sure that yeah, she was Yeah, and fine. put your pulse oximeter on my <laughs> finger. <laughs> as, as everyone knows, this pandemic has been very stressful for families all over the world. Um, unfortunately, we do not have much data of divorces um, and divorce rates rising or falling in, in Southern Africa. But in the US and in China, there is evidence that divorce filings rose dramatically um, right at the beginning of the pandemic. So in March of last year, a huge rise and then has fallen dramatically um, as the pandemic has continued. And what people are assuming is that, you know, since everything is so uncertain, People, it doesn't necessarily mean that people are happier together in lockdown. That's not why divorces are going down, but it's just that people are probably reluctant in facing economic uncertainty or maybe health issues or needing health insurance to make such a big decision, you know? Um, and, but everybody has, has highlighted the fact that this um, pandemic has caused many family issues, you know, with the homeschooling that you mentioned, financial issues with some people losing jobs, and just relationship issues, you know, having to manage all of this, the grief, the trauma, the added childcare, the fact that often one person in a relationship has different perspectives about risk and, you know, being careful than another. Um, one person is, is more susceptible to stress about the pandemic than the other. So I just wanted to ask you um, how this how um, this pandemic has been for you as a couple over the last year. Oh, wow. Um, I think because we are working with frontline workers, you know, it took, it, it has taken a lot of our time from each other, hey? because we're at work, um, despite the lockdowns and everything else, we didn't have a lockdown. We were still having to go to work. And like we said before, I was having to put extra hours. So we barely, you know, had time to really see each other. I think, and when we got sick, there's no way you're gonna be intimate or mushy mushy whilst you are sick. <laughs> so that also went away. So, but I would say we then reconnected in a more, deeper intellectual level because you are both frontliners and you are sharing experiences his from work mine from work as well and when we were sick you are literally in each, in each other's spaces for 14 days there's nowhere else to go you I guess you rediscover the other person you get to know the other person you get to ask um you know, questions you have never had time to settle down and ask and check in and ask. So, you know, how are you? What's up? You know, because you, you literally had to do that each morning. He would say, how are you? And then I'll be like, I'm fine. It's, it's weird, hey? You're asking each other how you are, but you're in the same house. But we had to do that. So for me, I'd say, yes, the um, intimate part goes away. One, just sheer lack of time 
because of work and when you're now sick because of being sick. But the conversations, it's like you're brought back to basics. You hmm. are start, it's like you're starting again. Like, good morning, good morning. How are you? How are you? Like literally, you 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 both now have time to ask each other how you are and give the person an opportunity to truly answer. And you know, so for me, that was my part. Otherwise, romance and everything else, unfortunately, no. literally you you don't have the time to light a candle because you're coming back home and you just want to sleep but during that time when we were both sick yeah I think that basic that raw that raw getting to know each other through conversations we I think it was a blessing that we got that chance because you 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 start again Wilfred, it sounds to me like as traumatic as those 14 days were, now that Paida is, is feeling better, it sounds like they might have even in some ways refreshed, uh, refreshed your relationship from what I'm hearing. It sounds like, you know, you've put an upgrade on the, on the file here, Wilfred. What would you say? Yeah. Yeah. So, so maybe let me start by saying what, what COVID-19 does from my experiences and from all the reading that I've done it tests the strengths of bonds and it amplifies weaknesses. So be it in a system, in a relationship, in anything. And for me, this would explain why there were an increase in the number of divorces because your relationship is tested, right? So even if it's strong, it, it will go through a test and any weakness, any weaknesses is, is you're going to find out weaknesses. It's going to be highlighted and, and amplified. So as we were going through, you know, it's interesting that you talk of intimacy. The definition of intimacy for me changed when you're with your partner in isolation and they're ill. And, you know, the, the level of concern and, you're in close proximity, but um, at the same time, maybe uh, Paida is out of it. She's sleeping or resting. You, you, it, 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 it redefines what it means to be intimate, particularly when you're talking about physical intimacy. Because when we think physical intimacy, we all rush uh, you know, to something with sexual connotations. But I can tell you, that I've, 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 I received more satisfaction when Paida would wake up and yawn and say, oh, okay, I slept better. There was more satisfaction there than anything else that we've done before because you're, you, you're, 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 you're glad that at a physical level, a person is well or getting better or recovering. And, and, and people take that for granted to say everything else that you can think of, even as we go into, you know, Valentine, everything else that you can think of starts with the individuals in a relationship being healthy and yeah. they themselves being in something that is healthy. Once there is ill health, right, all this Valentine stuff that we, we normally think of, you know, getting presents and, uh, romantic dinner and all that 
if you really strip it down to its core, how are you going to get flowers for someone who's unwell? How do you do that if you yourself are unwell? How do you go out for a meal if, if one of you or both of you are unwell? All of that. And, and so the foundation, the foundation of Valentine's for me has been redefined to say health. Health mm -hmm. for the individual partners and health of the relationship, right? Wow. And that is, Wilfred, that might be as, as profound a place as, as we could end this, this episode. So I honestly can't thank you enough um, for being willing to do this. Um, in addition to talk about your relationship as a married couple and parents dealing with this pandemic over the last year, I'm so glad you're both feeling well. And we really appreciate both of you so much. Haida and Wilfred Gurupira, thank you for coming on to the COVID-19 Conversations podcast. Thank you so much for listening. We hope today's discussion has resonated with you, provoked new thoughts, and provided you with evidence-based information as we all work to ensure that the global response to COVID-19 is accountable, equitable, and community-owned. This episode of the COVID-19 Conversations podcast was executive produced by Tian Johnson, hosted and produced by me, Maaza Siyum, with production assistance and editing by Luis Gonzalez Compalik. You can follow us on Twitter at Afri underscore Alliance or email us at info at africanalliance.org.za to give us feedback on this episode or to suggest topics for future episodes. Also, don't forget to sign up at africanalliance.org.za to never miss key news.